Paxton Quigley is rolling out the green carpet, talking to the creme de la creme of innovators and influencers who are shaping the world of cannabis and culture. Welcome to High Society with Paxton Quigley. Hello to all of you cannabis aficionados, and welcome to High Society with Paxton Quigley. Folks, first I'd like to thank our listeners for purchasing my novel. It's called Just Try Me, and it's available on Amazon. My book is about three cannabis-consuming women who get involved in all manners of international intrigue. And Just Try Me has been called attractive to people who appreciate spicy intrigue. And one male reviewer actually said, if the action doesn't grab you, the sex will. But let's go on to other things today. Cannabis. Folks, November 3rd's historic elections also ushered in a series of successful cannabis legalization ballots in five states. So whether it's adult use or medical legal cannabis, it generates much needed revenue to the states. Now, when New Jersey voters approved adult use on on, uh, November 3rd, New York's governor announced that he expects New York legislators to do the same in 2021. And perhaps it could be as early as January or February. Who knows? He was not shy about the reason. New York is desperate for money. New York's economy, like most everywhere in the nation, has been decimated by the coronavirus. The situation has been aggravated by a drop in federal aid. And I don't know, we got to hope it'll change under the new government of President-elect Joe Biden. But in the meantime, marijuana revenue would certainly come in handy. The governor seemingly does not like the idea of New Yorkers crossing the Hudson River into New Jersey to buy weed. They're missing out on all that revenue in New York. So folks, it's marijuana to the rescue. Strange how things happen, no? And now to another very important issue. Nearly a third of the country now has access to some form of legal marijuana, but military veterans are being left out of the equation. The US Veterans Administration Office or VA and maybe a lot of people don't know this, does not permit its physicians to recommend medicinal marijuana to veterans. And to my mind, that's a problem. So it's Veterans Day this week, and we're going to be discussing what's happening right now with Eric Gopal. He's a United States veteran and founder and CEO of the Veterans Cannabis Coalition. Eric Opel, welcome to High Society with Paxton Quigley. Thank you, Paxton. Happy to be here. Well, happy to have you on. Now, Eric, if at all, will the recent elections affect veterans' access to safe and legal medicinal cannabis? What do you think? Yeah, any time where you see either medicalization, as you've seen in Mississippi, that, you know, where the voters approved a uh, pretty broad medical cannabis program or adult use uh, legalization being adopted as we have um, in this last uh, in this last election in South Dakota, Montana, New Jersey, and Arizona. Anytime where there's an expansion of legal 
options, legal cannabis options available uh, to patients of any kind. You know, veterans certainly fall within the realm of patients. Um, you know, that that's a benefit, right? And we understand that, you know, it, you know, sort of comparing um, the experiences of patients in medical states, even in states that have adopted medical programs, a lot of patients end up finding themselves unable to participate because there's some sort of recurring fee or other barrier to entry that prevents them from even participating. Whereas adult use uh, basically eliminates the kind of gatekeeping that you see around like medical recommendations. Um, you know, some states charging upwards of, you know, two or $300 potentially uh, just to, you know, every year for a patient just to be able to buy very expensive, you know, medical cannabis in their, in their state that, you know, uh, you know, anytime adult use comes through, and you see more, you know, expansion in licensing and, and uh, you know, theoretically more competition in the market, right? Any, you know, more, more competition tends to lower prices. Um, you know, cannabis being a commodity, it is, you know, it's not easy to grow by any means, but it's not exactly, you know, it's not impossible to grow, especially at scale, um, you know, with the right equipment and the right know-how. And as time progresses, more cannabis becomes available on the marketplace, which sort of pushes... Uh, creates a downward pressure on on all pricing, which, as a consumer or as a patient, um, is all to is all to our our gain and to our benefit. So you're saying this this looks good then? Yeah, any any advance in legalization, whether medical or adult use, is is a gain for patients. I believe. Yes. Now, tell us what are the most prevalent conditions that that veterans tend to suffer from, uh, and 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 why medical marijuana can be beneficial to them. Sure. So what, what a lot of veterans end up dealing with um, as a result of their service is, you know, people talk a lot about PTSD, right? Post-traumatic stress disorder being one of the most common um, veteran-related symptoms or, or disorders that are brought up. Um, of course, PTSD is not unique to veterans. Anyone who's exposed to trauma that puts them in fear for their life has a potential of developing PTSD, whether it's, you know, a car accident or a sexual assault, you know, or, you know, combat. The, you know, but one of the issues with something like PTSD is that it has so many symptoms, right? It can cause any, anything, you know, it can result in anything from something like hypervigilance, which is essentially like, you know, a lot of veterans, a lot of veteran military veterans, especially experience this in that they never really feel comfortable in their location, wherever they are. And they're constantly, you know, scanning, looking for threats or dangers, right? Can start be something like hypervigilance or it could be something um, like insomnia or depression, which are very common symptoms of many other disorders and conditions. Now, the way that veterans tend to experience medical care in this country is you go to the VA, the Department of Veterans Affairs, the, uh, the Veterans Health Administration, which provides health care to uh, over 6 million veterans in this country, or to private health, you know, through Medicare, Medicaid, or, or private insurance. But either way, the, the result um, in most veterans, you know, seeking medical care tends to be here are pharmaceuticals, right? The the modal the sort of care modality that exists um, right now seems to focus primarily on pills, and the fact that so many veterans are experienced complex issues or severe issues like PTSD, which can result in any number of other symptoms, right? That are you know related to the to the underlying disorder we end up with veterans being prescribed cocktails of pretty toxic and addictive medications. 
stuff from, you know, antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds like benzodiazepines, which we know are, have significant um, risk factors involved, to opioids, to, uh, you know, other sedatives and, uh, you know, like Ambien, to, you know, I mean, and even things like ibuprofen or gabapentin, which, you know, ibuprofen is unscheduled, gabapentin is a Schedule 5 drug, you know, both are considered pretty uh, low risk, and yet there are 10,000 deaths every year associated with non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, just like ibuprofen. And it's become such a common crutch as a pain reliever. And they're given in such, in such high doses for such uh, extended periods of time that things like, that even like benign things like ibuprofen end up resulting in like gastrointestinal bleeds or kidney or liver damage. And those are often exacerbated because you're not just taking that by itself, right? You're taking all these other pharmaceuticals that also contribute to liver, kidney, GI, um, you know, complications. You know, not to mention the, uh, you know, the the, the uh, physiological changes in, in your brain that happen, you know, under constant um, use of of stuff like benzos or antidepressants. All all the combination of all these things basically contributes to. You know, we we certainly understand understand that to be a contributing factor to the ongoing veteran suicide and overdose crisis in that this is the, this is what veterans get when they, when they come to medical professionals. It's like, here's a boatload of pills because the therapies that you need are expensive, you know, talk therapy or any kind of, um, you know, when, when people talk about like mental health therapy, right. Sometimes a lot of times that it just ends up being pills, right. Being able to physically engage or, and have a, have a good relationship with a, with a care provider, right. That's not something a lot of veterans get or have the option of even, um, even attaining because medical uh, mental health care is so uh, there's so little <laughs> compared to compared, compared to the demand. And we've only seen that demand skyrocket, you know, with COVID, you know, and we understand that, you know, isolation and all these other things that are negatively impacting the mental health of other Americans are definitely impacting the mental health of veterans who are already at higher risks of, you know, of suicide and overdose because of their underlying conditions, because of the pharmaceuticals that they're prescribed and because, the desperation that veterans experience when trying to manage these conditions and figure and, and feeling constantly like, what am I doing wrong? You know, why I'm, I'm doing everything the doctor is telling me, you know, I'm going to the therapies the VA is giving me and yet nothing seems to really be helping me. And in fact, not only is it not helping me, I seem to be getting worse. What you've been telling me is making me so mad. So let's say I'm a veteran and I don't want to take any of these pills. And I say to the doctor and the VA, I, I don't want to take them. Uh, I've had problems with some of them and I want to have medical marijuana. What happens then? It really depends on the doctor, right? Doctors within the VA are federal employees, right? The, the Department of Veterans Affairs has repeatedly told us as advocates, you know, who have been trying to push the VA to uh, allow doctors to engage in state legal medical or adult use programs. Um, their response has always been as federal employees, they can't, they can't recommend a schedule one drug, which, okay, makes sense. Right now that is sort of the top line, um, you know, response from the VA, but what we've heard from veterans all over the country who have used, you know, the VA operates in all 50 States. And I think most of the major U uh, S territories, there's 1,100 clinics and hospitals all over the country. Um, you know, what veterans have experienced individually has been sometimes doctors very, um, very open, you know, in talking about cannabis, but, but basically being, acknowledging the fact that they can't prescribe it. 
you know, and they can't help them access it in any way. And they don't really have much, they can't, you know, take a position and say, you know, cannabis maybe be able to help you with X or Y. They have to sort of hedge and say, well, you know, I've talked, other patients of mine have used cannabis and have similar conditions to yours. And, you know, they've benefited and maybe it would be worthwhile to check that out. You know, that's kind of the workaround. The other, the flip side of that though, is that veterans who go to their doctor say, you know, I, I don't want to use anything else. You know, I have used, maybe I've used cannabis in the past and that's helped me, you know, can you help me with that? And then end up being um, flagged because as having cannabis use disorder, right? So both dynamics exist within the VA right now. And that's a problem because VA, you know, these are, these are the primary doctor, primary care uh, providers for a lot of veterans who don't know much or anything about cannabis, can't legally even really even talk about it beyond, or they can talk about it, but legally, obviously they can't prescribe it or, or, or write uh, doctor's recommendations um, in any state. So, you know, veterans are often caught in that, you know, limbo of like, okay, well, the VA can't help me. You know, I'm having to pay out of pocket for everything. Nobody really knows, you know, um, you know, the best course of, or best way for you to, for me to use cannabis um, medicinally. And so, you know, I'm just sort of, uh, know, out in the wilderness and trying to find my way. And that, that's a terrible position to put veterans or any patients in because essentially you're forcing them to have to continually advocate for themselves and in a way that, you know, is putting them at a massive disadvantage. You know what it sounds like to me that there's a coalition between the, the, the military industrial complex and the medical industrial complex, because obviously uh, if, if uh, the Veterans Administration is having so many people on all of these drugs, uh, the pharmaceuticals are hugely benefit from that. Is that ever talked about? Almost never. I mean, we, this, this is something that we have taken on as a major issue related to, you know, the Veterans Cannabis Coalition. It's an, you know, independent organization, um, primarily of myself and my co-founder. We're both Iraq War veterans. We both experienced personally the benefits of cannabis and seen firsthand the benefits in, you know, at this point, thousands of veterans um, that we either know personally or have met through our advocacy. And you know, how that turns back in, into all this is that, you know, veterans understand that like the drugs don't work. Veterans tell their doctors the drugs don't work. And yet for some, you know, and, and, you know, veterans in our conversations will repeatedly draw, draw, uh, you know, connect back to their pharmaceutical drug use and say, this was the thing that was grinding me down. Right. Like this, you know, it was, it was like this benzodiazepine that I took that triggered my suicide attempt, or it was, you know, this mixture of drugs that caused, you know, an accidental overdose, or, you know, and, and these are these are all risks, you know, and it's a, and it's a basic. There's this basic thing. It's like, well, okay, everyone at Congress and everyone else acknowledges that veterans are at high risk of suicide. Okay, that's that's acknowledged. Now we also acknowledge that almost every drug that veterans are, are prescribed, especially for any kind of like mental or, you know, severe physical health issue have, you know, will rise, will increase the risk of suicide. Okay. So why are you giving high risk populations drugs, which you know, will increase the risk of suicide? And how do you basically stand back and say, well, obviously these things aren't connected. <laughs> and that's basically, that's basically been the response in DC, you know, and that's been one of the most frustrating aspects of all this in that, you know, we're trying to get cannabis prohibition, you know, bring an end to cannabis prohibition as a benefit to all Americans, not just veterans. Um, and just, you know, making the medical potential of this plant actually 
real, you know, being able to realize that potential uh, post, you know, with legalization. You know, and, but we can't even overcome this basic lack of understanding. And it's like, at this point, it's like, if you, if you don't understand it, if you're not listening to veterans who are telling you that this is the case, if you're ignoring the evidence that you see constantly about it, then you really don't have an excuse for not saying, like, we're, for saying we're doing everything we can to, to end veteran suicide. Because that's not the case. If, if Congress was, was serious about doing everything they can, if our federal government, you know, including the, the VA, which is an executive agency, is really serious, they would be pursuing investigating cannabis because this is something that patients, millions of patients, are telling them is working better for them than what they, were, than what they have available right now. And that has been almost completely lost in a lot of the conversation around legalization. Uh, but you must be mad. You must be so mad a lot of the time because of what well, you're you know, going helps. up against. <laughs> yeah, <cannabis laughs> now, uh, I remember there was a case that received a great deal of, of news coverage that was about a disabled veteran. I think his name is Sean Worsley, who yep. recently, while visiting Alabama, was arrested for possessing his own legal medical marijuana. Can, can you tell us about that case and, and, and how it, it reflects again on, this, on the situation of medical marijuana? So Sean's arrest actually happened in Alabama in 2016. This is kind of give you an idea of how long an ordeal this has already been before he actually ended up being imprisoned over, uh, over cannabis possession. But Sean, at the time in 2016, he was driving from Arizona where he was a medical patient with his state, with his state um, legal medical cannabis, driving across state lines, passing throughout Alabama, basically harassed by a racist cop. Um, Sean, who didn't think you know, that medical cannabis, uh, you know, I, I think he assumed that there was some sort of reciprocity between states acknowledging that, you know, and usually there is, and acknowledging that, like, the, the, what's legal in one state is legal in this state under, you know, certain circumstances. Anyway, um, he allowed a cop to search his vehicle. The cop basically uh, came back with, you know, with the cannabis, and he took his. How much they, cannabis it, was there, by the way? Do you know? They didn't actually define it in the charge. So un, in Alabama, anything under, I think it's like two pounds, basically can be. Uh, I don't think it's that much, but anything anything under a certain amount is all possession. So you could have like you could have you know cannabis crumbs, or you could have you know a full ounce, and it would still be treated the same. But the fact that that Sean had that the, his cannabis was in baggies, and that there was a scale involved, and of course medical patients understand that if you have a limited amount of cannabis and you have to actually ration it, which a lot of patients end up doing, scales can help, right? But to a cop, that's immediately uh, intent to sell. And so that, and so now we start to see how, you know, what started off as a cannabis possession charge immediately gets escalated into, you know, intent to sell, which is now a felony, right? It's a felony to possess. It's a, it's a, it's an enhanced felony to, uh, to sell. And so, you know, Sean ended up being arrested that day with his wife, uh, who is also his caregiver, um, both being put in the county jail, uh, essentially, you know, for, I think over a week, um, while wait, while awaiting arraignment, and then basically Sean was separated without a lawyer and and pled to five years. So he agreed to a five-year probation charge, essentially for possession of cannabis. And as a result of that five years of probation hanging over him, you know that's sort of that's basically what entra- what created the trap that he fell into, which a lot of uh, people who who, fall, who get into the criminal justice system and end up on any kind of supervised release or probation know that it's like, screw up once, you're back in jail, right? Miss an appointment, 
you know, and Sean is a cannabis patient and now he has to stop taking cannabis because you can't, you know, you have to pass your drug screens, right? And you can't have cannabis in your system and be out on probation, right? So like, so you can kind of see right from the beginning, um, you know, that this is how so many patients and people who end up possessing cannabis somehow end up with what is what is a relatively low level charge end up you know with the felony charge end up on probation and then in Sean's case end up back in jail um, as a result of you know non communication from his from his court appointed lawyer uh, you know to just the I mean the maliciousness of the courts in Alabama I mean there, there's really no reason uh, you know and, and Sean is currently out on parole. So, you know, we, we can say at least that the, the parole board in Alabama, which is not acknowledged as being uh, lenient in any real way, you know, finally maybe felt some pressure from, you know, the broad, you know, the outside community to acknowledge that this was like, who is being served? Sean is a, you know, Sean is a disabled veteran. That disability. How old is he? From, By the yeah. way, how old is he? Uh, actually, about. You know, that's a good question. I, yeah, I think Sean is in his, I want to say he's about my age. So I don't want to say he's in his mid, early mid thirties. Uh-huh. Um, which I think is where a lot of, uh, a lot of post 9-11 vets are, are currently, you know, like 38, you know, to like 28 kind of in that range. Um, so Sean's what about, Iraq. Oh, I wanted to ask you, yeah. what okay. about, yeah. um, vets who are like 50 years old? What are they doing? Are, 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 are they on the opioids because, you know, they're 50, 60 and maybe they, you know, have been negatively against, uh, or negatively against uh, marijuana. Uh, what's happening with, with those vets, the older men and women? Well, I, I think we're seeing, I think across the board, just older people in general being more open and accepting of cannabis. I mean, still relatively small numbers, but, um, you know, and, and obviously this is sort of a, this is anecdotal, but, you know, in California, at least a lot of Vietnam era veterans were some of the first people who went, you know, after returning from their tours, you know, um, went into Northern California and started some of the first, you know, first real pot farms that were growing cannabis consistently in this, in this country. Um, so I, I think veterans, you know, veterans, especially with vet, with experience in Vietnam might've been exposed to cannabis and, or heroin uh, overseas. And not, you know, but a lot of them ended up sort of uh, distancing themselves, I think, from both uh, for different reasons. And I, I think that stigma has been a lot, been very hard in overcoming, but it is, it, it is continuing. And I think it's accelerating, which is a good thing because there's so many veterans who are older, who are relying on opioids or, you know, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, which, you know, we talked about, you know, have all these secondary complications uh, which could be replaced by something like CBD, right? If you're if you're looking for an anti-inflammatory control, you know why not use something that has lower risk and more efficacy, right? Versus something that you that we all acknowledge can have you know pretty severe uh, complications, especially when you use it consistently. Yes. Now let's get to the present. We've got a new president. Uh, what do you think can possibly happen in terms of changing laws? Or is it going to be, again, another fight for four years? Uh, it's can, always going to be a fight. Can, yeah, for the foreseeable always future. Always is going to be a fight. A fight. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean once, once cannabis is, fu- is fully normalized, I think the, the, the tenor of the fights will change. But until then, no. I mean, we're, we're, we have an uphill battle ahead of us. And a lot of what's possible in the next two years is going to be a result of who takes the Senate. Right. We still have two um, 
two, uh, two seats that have not been decided in Georgia. Right. Those two seats are, and maybe, a la- and maybe one in Alaska. So uh, those two, you know, those two Georgia Senate seats are going to determine Senate control. Senate Democrats can swing them. Well, then now you got 50-50 with, you know, the VP acting as the tiebreaker uh, vote. But a 50 vote, 50 votes in the Senate, unless they remove the filibuster, means you still have to get to 60 in order to uh, file for cloture, which is, you know, an actually advanced legislation. So whatever happens, it, the Senate's still an uphill battle, but it's all, but it's basically impossible if McConnell, nothing is going to be real, very no, no broad, le- no broad uh, legislative reform is going to be possible if Mitch McConnell uh, and the Republican majority uh, maintains control of the Senate. Some things, things become possible if, if the Democrats can get to 50, but it's still going to require Republican votes in order to advance anything significant. Um, that doesn't mean, of course, that the House can't advance uh, the Moore Act and other you know, cannabis reform legislation and basically at least put it in the Senate's um, you know, to-do list, <laughs> you know, the Senate's great at just sitting on legislation and not, and not taking it up, but that's historically been its role. Uh, you know, but, but there's always stuff that can be done ex- by, through executive order as well. You know, we talk about cannabis being a schedule one substance. That's an administrative rule that's, that's accomplished through the executive uh, agency the, under uh, the Department of Justice, which DEA falls under. So the president can single-handedly deschedule cannabis if he so chose. He deschedule any drug, really, if he so chose, um, through executive order. Now that doesn't mean, of course, that like you know every state is going to be legal, but at least the federal basis for criminalization will be removed, which I think is going to have either way, whether it's done legislatively or through executive order, it's going to have massive uh, ripple effects uh, through both state and international law, certainly. So, what are your next steps uh, for the the coming year? Let's say. What are you going to be focusing on and how are you going to do it? And of course, I know you need as many members as possible to be part of the Veterans Cannabis Coalition. So do tell us more about what your plans are for the coming year, 2021, and what you think you might be able to accomplish. <laughs> sure. Yeah. The, the, so federally, um, you know, we're, we're part, the Veterans Cannabis Coalition is part of the Marijuana Justice Coalition, which is a uh, group it's a group of 15, 14 other nonprofit and uh, advocacy organizations, including the ACLU, and uh, as well as uh, traditional um, cannabis allies like uh, Normal, National Organization for Marijuana Laws, and uh, the Drug Policy Alliance are some of the organizations that are supporting broad federal reform, of which the MORE Act, the Marijuana um, Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act, is kind of the, the key piece of legislation. So federally, that's what that's what we're gonna all be working on and supporting is the MORE Act. Now, it, it its chances are obviously gonna be determined by Senate composition and, and political capital. Um, you know, but if the Democrats are smart, that you know they would probably run on descheduling or some sort of mer- cannabis reform in 2022 in the midterms to try to turn out vote because we understand like, hey, people will turn out to vote for cannabis. We understand that. Um, that's federally. Uh, some other, we're looking at some smaller um, legislation like instituting uh, like cannabis education within the Department of Veterans Affairs. Uh, the Department of Veterans Affairs, um, Veterans Health Administration trains upwards of 60% of the country's doctors at any given time in their, in their medical careers. You know, they're practicing or, uh, or training at a VA facility and has a unique, posi- is a unique position to educate this country's doctors in a I think unbiased and comprehensive way about cannabis 
but first they have to develop that education for, you know, but right. Cause right now, how many doctors even understand what the endocannabinoid system is or how phytocannabinoid, uh, phytocannabinoids like THC and CBD interact with your endogenous receptors. There's a lot of, there's a lot there that, you know, the medical field has not really engaged with on cannabis. And that's, <laughs> yeah, it's malpractice. I think at this point to ignore the fact that literally millions of people are using these substances you know, and, and getting medical effects out of them and doctors not having any, any real sense of how or why. Um, at the state level or at the local level in California, we're working on two major programs, one being expanding SB 34 donations. SB 34 is a state program, is a state law that allows licensed cannabis operators to donate um, uh, cannabis products to eligible patients. And right now we're, we're just in the very beginning stages of getting industry participation in something like this. And we understand that, especially in a state like California, there's 1.6 million veterans. Yet, you know, 20, roughly one in five veterans use cannabis for, uh, for medical conditions. And that's, so that's, we're looking at at least 300,000 veteran patients, right? And that's just veterans. That's not even talking about all cannabis patients. So there's a huge demand, um, you know, for medical cannabis in the state. And we understand that price and physical access you know, what lo local control has largely limited the ability for patients to uh, either affordably or consistently access the medicine that they need. So anything that can be done to lower those barriers, especially through something like a compassionate donation program, is going to, I think, pay big dividends for the patient community. And so, you know, and we're, we're, try we're trying to wrap all this stuff together as part of an overarching program. Now, how many veterans do you have as members of your group? Do you have any, any so not, numbers there? We're not, yeah, we're, well, we're not a member-based organization. You're not at all. Right, so I mean, no. So what we do is primarily work by, with, and through others, right, which is sort of my uh, mentality that I developed in the military, which is, you know, we don't have to um, recreate what everyone else is doing. You know, we're, we have our own strengths, you know, of which, you know, policy and uh, legislation and organizing are, are definitely some of them. And so, you know, we, re we go out there, we find those who are already doing the work, we help, uh, we help bring them in, expand what they're doing, tie them into more support, and then, you know, over time develop, a, you know, a more of a formalized association amongst all these groups and, you know, industry members who are all doing good things, but could be doing a lot more and a lot more efficiently if we were, you know, in communication and coordinating. Well, I'm really happy that you could be on our show today. You've really enlightened us, I think, about what's happening uh, with our vets and I know that we all support the vets and the, and the, the veterans health and welfare and uh, if anything new comes along uh, we'd love to have you back on the air please tell us uh, your website so people can go there and, and learn more about your organization right so the website is veterans canna c-a-n-n-a coalition.org uh, that Veterans Canada Coalition is also our handle on IG, on Instagram and Facebook. Um, we also have a call to action tool that's available. So if anyone, you know, I've been talking about the MORE Act. MORE Act is a descheduling and decriminalization bill. If anyone would like to support that, um, they can text five two BCC, that's Victor Charlie Charlie, to 52886. You get a link and you'll be able to uh, contact a member of Congress and ask them to support the bill. Thank you, Eric, and, and thank you so much for being on High Society with, with Paxton Quigley. We certainly you, appreciate it. And uh, folks, please remember that my novel, Just Try Me, is available on Amazon in paperback and Kindle. And of course, to all of our listeners, you can visit us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram by going to 
High Society with Paxton Quigley. Stay safe, please wear a mask, and stay in touch. I'm Paxton Quigley. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.